bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello. So I am looking forward to this because this is going to be about, I think, one of my investment themes for the future. So I'm interested to see where this goes. Things are looking up for you, are they? (laughs) They are indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so today's guest... As a graduate of Columbia University in the city of New York with a master's in uh, sustainability management, graduate from Ryerson University, food security and urban agriculture, international agricultural studies, and the University of British Columbia in political science and environmental politics. Welcome to the show, Henry Gordon Smith. Hi, guys. How's it going? It's going well. Good. So, uh, Henry, you're the founder of agritecture.com, a leading media platform covering the news, business, and design of how agriculture integrates with the built environment. That makes you unique. Co-founder of the Association for Vertical Farming and co-founder of AgTech X and founder of Agitecture Consulting, assisting global portfolio projects with over 86 clients in 21 countries, including entrepreneurs, multinational companies, architecture firms, municipalities, and educational institutions. You are a well-traveled man, as we found out. So, Henry, <laughs> you're unique in the world. Tell us your story. Yeah, so uh, Agritecture Consulting has reached 110 consultations to date now. We've updated that in 26 countries. But long before that, I started getting interested in urban agriculture and my undergraduate degree when I noticed that entrepreneurs and cities and developers, since we're talking about this topic specifically, don't understand the differences between the types of urban agriculture. How does a greenhouse perform versus a vertical farm versus a soil-based farm? What's the minimum scale you need? 
And this was really where my journey began in my undergraduate degree. Prior to that, I grew up in big cities like Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Moscow, Russia. So I have a very city-focused global experience. And after my undergraduate degree, as I started exploring urban agriculture, I wanted to become an expert at it. So I studied food security and urban agriculture at Ryerson, a great online program for anyone interested in being policy leader in the space, and then sustainability management to learn the business of solving sustainability issues. I worked for a couple different companies, including a water company, and then people from my blog, essentially enthusiasts in the topic, started requesting consulting from me. So I never thought I would be a consultant. I like a variety of projects, but I didn't think that was the pathway I was going to go. But I got two requests in one week and started the consulting business. And now here we are. That's the universe telling you something there, I'd say. Absolutely it is. Okay. So just uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about this. So just to lay my table out, I'm a big my side hustle is investing and looking after my investment portfolio. And I'm a big fan of looking at the macro level themes and trying to ride the waves of those macro level themes. And I believe a future macro theme that is going to emerge is real estate investment trusts that specialize in vertical and urban farming. Now, that's sort of the business side of what you've just described. But just to take it back a bit. Can you talk about the different types of vertical farming? You spoke about there's a scale is an issue, obviously location's an issue. Can you just give us a quick sort of like 101 on it? Yeah. So vertical farming is a type of urban agriculture. And so what I like to explain is a spectrum of technology. So on one side, you have low tech and on the other side, you have high tech. So before I talk about vertical farming, I just want to explain this first. On the low tech side, you have the more traditional community gardens. You might have a soil based plot, a vacant space in a city. As we start to get more advanced, we start to use a bit of engineering, right? We're going to start using containers. As we get more advanced, we're going to start integrating into rooftops or maybe facades, but still pretty much soil-based. As we get a little bit more high-tech, we're going to start trying to control that environment, right? We're going to create a structure for it so it can grow year-round. That's controlled environment agriculture, which is typically known as greenhouses. They can be light structures. They can be very automated, controlled environment systems. So there's a really a big range of even that category in the middle. And then as we move further along, you might have a container, right? A unit that's been retrofitted to have vertical farming systems in it. And vertical farms are three-dimensional farms. They use typically hydroponic systems, and you stack those systems above each other to maximize vertical space and thus reduce the footprint. But like any controlled environment system, in vertical farms, you can actually maintain the climate, the pH, the environmental controls that the plant needs to be thriving no matter what the season is. Vertical farms can come in many different sizes. You could convert a basement into a vertical farm and start with 50 square meters, 500 square feet. You could do a container. You could do a small warehouse. You could do a big warehouse, like uh, some of the big companies that are raising a lot of money now. But really, that's where this type of farming is. And so that's how you can kind of think about vertical farming in the context of all of urban agriculture. And vertical farming is exciting because, as I said, because of that footprint, you can be a little bit more flexible with the scale. With that said, I want to say that it's not, you know, the business model shifts as the scale changes. So a small vertical farm is going to be more retail focused, direct to consumer maybe, right? It's going to be more about a chef garden, a really premium product. The larger ones are going to be more about volume and wholesale. Well, that's interesting. You blew my mind there when you said basement can be a vertical farm. And then I sat and thought, well, everyone's growing weed in their basement in Canada at the moment. So why not, right? Well, look, I mean, I think that there should be, I think that's great. If you're growing cannabis, you probably yeah. will be able to grow lettuce. Yeah, exactly. So why can't you grow something else? The, the technology is the same. Actually, yeah. the two industries really relate to each other. I mean, we see talent. Um, I've got employees on my team that have experience in cannabis that now work for me on food and vice versa. 
you also see a lot of technology development between them. I mean, cannabis production is most often done in controlled environments. They use lights, they use hydroponic systems. In many cases, they control the variables. The difference is, is that the value of that plant relative to a lettuce plant is very, very different. Magnitudes of difference in their value. So the way yeah. the operations are run are, are also different. But the core technology behind it is very similar. So I have a young son. Yeah, he's 32 years old. And he actually, yeah, so he works for one of Canada's largest cannabis producing companies. They've used, you know, distribution worldwide and production worldwide. And he's their fertigation specialist. And, you know, so I get to, as a engineer, retired engineer, that I get a chance to talk to him about their systems. And so we should talk about these systems because they're advanced. I mean, when you talk about the growth of a plant, it's not the same as typical indoor environments and buildings, you know, where we're talking about a steady state condition. A lot of these production, depending on the crop, the indoor environments change over the life of the crop, right? Absolutely. And so the, the mechanical and the electrical and the chemicals, the fertilization, it, this is a dynamic environment. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, look, the plants are, they're live, right? And as you said, throughout their life cycle, they change. And actually that also changes depending on the kind of plant, right? So certain plants, you're going to grow to fruit, like a cannabis plant or a tomato. And that has a big shift in the kind of nutrients you'd want to give it throughout its life. It also has a big shift in the kind of light you'd want to give it throughout its life. You also have different harvest strategies for each kind of plant. A tomato isn't going to start producing until months after you plant it, while a lettuce plant will be ready to harvest after 30 days, sometimes less if you grow it in an indoor farm. So, you know, it's huge differences. So what agriculture does is we actually analyze all these differences and put them in the databases and help our clients plan how they can use a space and what the operational challenges that will be. In some cases, there's minimums and maximums, right? Like a 50 square meter or 500 square foot tomato farm is not going to be profitable. I mean, it would be very, very, very difficult to make that work. You need scale for some of those plants that require longer life cycles. Some plants require much, much higher labor costs. And HVAC, the, the heating and ventilation and cooling for these systems, is probably still the greatest single challenge across the industry. Because as those plants are growing and going through these different stages, they create microclimates. As the light from those artificial lights, LED lights or HPS lights, which are pretty common in cannabis, you know, disperse onto the plant, the plant is actually photosynthesizing, it's evapotranspirating, that creates its own microclimate. So it's a lot of technologies and, and there's a lot still to learn. Yeah. So Adam, like going back to your investments on a macro scale, looking for engineering companies that specialize because not, I just know that when you take a typical mechanical engineering firm and hire them to do these facilities, they just don't quite understand the nuances of these uh, dynamic environments. And so they apply traditional building science and mechanical sciences to these facilities. And you know what? They don't work. Yeah. And ultimately ends up in bad production of crops. So that's a lost asset and destroyed value. They end up actually having an impact on the building. So now you have a destruction on the asset of the building itself. And it can get really messy. But the engineering firms that understand the dynamics of both the building science, the mechanical science, and crop science these are a rare breed, and Adam, maybe that's one of the areas you can invest in. Well, I've got to say, my brain's firing on all things here, because I'm thinking about, just take the engineering side of it, you know, sticking a rooftop unit on it and going, done, it's not going to work. By the way, that's 80% <laughs> of Canadian engineering, guys. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right? That's not going to work. So there is a real opportunity here for specialist engineering firms who can really get down to that level of control. I'm thinking about our past guest, Paul Gezzi from Control Energy. Mm. 
So this is where they're moving, space they're moving into. They're moving heavily into the space you're in, Henry, with IoT. So what they're bringing is the data and the extreme data analysis. So you've got this convergence. So if you draw a Venn diagram of engineering, property, IoT, data analysis, mm-hmm. all that has to come in, right? So people, when people think of farmers, they think of a guy in Wellington boots getting cold in the middle of a field screaming at a dog, right? <laughs> it could not be further from the truth. The truth is this is a highly technical job, right? You've got to understand chemical engineering, in this case, building engineering, environmental engineering. You've got to, it's mind-blowing. But just to step back from that, because- and, my- and I just want to add one point to that. Yeah. You know, I think when we think about the future of cities and how we are going to unlock sustainable urban development, it's my philosophy that vertical farming and greenhouse agriculture in the city, because of those challenges you mentioned, are actually the key to unlocking sustainable urban development. The things we're learning on how we manage these biological systems and the various engineering components for it allow us to understand the circular economy, allow us to understand the integration of how various resources connect between buildings in a way that we've never done before. So I ask all the listeners, try to think about a new emerging sustainable technology that embraces the food, water, energy, waste nexus better than vertical farming. There's nothing like it. And so that's why I think it's a really interesting thing for cities to get behind and developers to explore in addition to the benefits that are pretty obvious. But that's kind of the more philosophical approach that matches what you said. Well, I'll I'll throw one more thing onto that deep pile you just described. And what about readaption of old buildings? You could strip these vertical office blocks down to their concrete or whatever level you need to and readapt them as vertical farms, right? Yeah, I was going to I was going to mention that, you know, think about all the abandoned shopping centers or the, the shopping centers that are starting to die off. Right. Because of just the way the, the culture is changing and high rise buildings that well, I think about the vacancy rate here in downtown Calgary, which is incredibly high right now. You know, all these spaces and, of course, the developers are all vying for new tenants. And so they're putting lots of money into upgrades, trying to attract people when, in fact, you know what, maybe they should just forget the people part of it and look at plants. Huh? It begins with the letter P. <laughs> it's a, not a huge stretch. You know, I'm with you, Adam. I think this is a huge opportunity for property yeah, owners. I will say, so, you know, depending on the scale, retrofitting can be a big challenge. So, you know, if you're building one of those mega farming facilities, let's say it's 10,000 square foot or larger, the HVAC requirements for them are pretty extreme. So, you know, you're thinking about what a data center needs. And so retrofitting that kind of load can be pretty prohibitive depending on the market. I think some markets, the conversion of retail will make sense. And I think some of the smaller micro farms will make a lot more sense to also attract foot traffic and revitalize that area. Even other types of farming that are not indoor can do that for these areas. But the large ones retrofitting, what we're seeing a lot of the large companies do, and when we work with our clients, there is always this question of retrofit versus new build. And, and the fact is that when you do a new build, the efficiencies you get sometimes are worth taking that structure. So unless there's incentives that are pretty compelling, and there are some, if you look at Aero Farms, they had a lot of incentives to retrofit an old laser tag warehouse in New Jersey into a vertical farm. Those incentives can attract vertical farms to do those retrofits. But without them, I think as a pure business case to compete on what a retailer could pay, that's not really realistic today. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah. So what we're getting onto here is price signals. The invisible hand of the market, right, is essentially a description of price signals. So how were lions and elephants brought back from the brink? They were assigned an economic value via tourism, right, and hunting licenses. So what's happening at the moment? I think food, and I'm very talking very tongue in cheek here from a Western perspective, is too cheap. Mass-produced, chemically 
enhanced food is too cheap. However, I don't see that being sustainable for the long term. And in the future, as price of food rises, the incentive to move to a vertical or an urban situation will be enhanced, right? Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. And I've been talking about that for years and not the only one, but there's externalities in the food system that are not being accounted for when we pay for our product. Yep. One of them is food safety. If we look at what's happening right now, the CDC in the United States, for the third time this year, I believe, at least the second time this year, maybe the last one was late last year, announced that you should not buy romaine lettuce at the stores because there's been another E. coli outbreak. So another justification to grow indoors is actually that you create clean environments. The fact is that leafy greens that are being grown in Arizona and shipped across the country, sometimes other parts of the world, there's so much opportunity for contamination in that system. And leafy greens are especially prone to this when they're grown outdoors and there's animals running around and there's workers that may not be trained or have the kind of compensation that warrants them to be as careful as they need to with food safety. But if you take that indoors, the risks are reduced dramatically. And the CDC actually said greenhouse grown and indoor farm grown Romaine is safe to eat, but outdoor grown romaine, don't eat it. If it's in your fridge, throw it out now. That's a public health announcement. So those costs are going to start to catch up. Other costs, including water, which we've been using with complete disregard. I mean, Canada has, has more time because it's, it has some abundance. But if, if you're interested in looking at the true abundance of Canada's water, you can read my published paper called Canadian Water Myths. It's about the water budget of Canada, my only published work. But anyway, I, 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 the, <laughs> I will so, add a link to that in the download notes. But the myth of Canada's water abundance, that's what it's called. So anyway, the water use for these plants outdoors is also not sensible, not to mention the food waste. So the waste along that system. Indoor farming, although it's more expensive right now than outdoor grown produce, it's getting cheaper. And I think those externalities are going to be the dramatic shift that may justify the investment you're talking about. Adam, you know, I'm thinking about like Northern Canada, the climates and like, for example, Yellowknife or Whitehorse, where it's very difficult to get fresh produce up there. And these opportunities for indoor farming systems, I mean, what a better marriage. You know, rather than having to get stuff from California, ship it thousands and thousands of miles north, by the time it gets there, it's not fresh anymore when you can grow it locally in these facilities. I, yeah, and also I the, the price of food is high enough up there possibly to move it to an economically sustainable model, right? Yeah, and that's where my brain was going, you know. And I think in terms of talking about incentives, that I think there's a classic situation where there may be enough incentives for people to do these grow operations. I agree that northern communities in Canada are going to be ripe for this. We've certainly talked yeah. to some of them about this. And, you know, there's there's been real consequences to the lack of fresh food. If you look at the obesity rates and the heart disease rates in these communities, and it's really sad because, you know, culturally, the indigenous communities actually were able to grow their own food before modernization, industrialization came in. They existed before we came. Yeah. So, so they were able to produce everything they needed. And now they've become dependent upon us sending them frozen chicken wings or them you know, buying that. And that's really had, had a really negative effect. And, and there are incentives actually to work with Northern communities on these specific topics and actually indoor farming specifically. The challenge there, I agree with you on the price. The price will be justified. The, the price of importing that product to such an extreme climate does justify the capital cost for a lot of these systems. But also in these extreme climates, you tend to have a higher energy cost. So the next frontier for these northern communities, and, and I was speaking about this at the Decentralized Energy Forum in Banff, which is, I guess, in your backyard the last month. But you know, the future of that is, is decentralized energy, is, is how do we store renewable energy for these communities in the future and connect them to farming systems. 
And I think, again, those campuses, again, going back to that circular economy idea I mentioned earlier, that's the future of those communities as well. So just I want to talk about water because water is one of the things I bang on about and no one seems to get excited about. So we're all excited about energy depletion and, you know, peak oil. But there's substitutes for energy, right? There's wind, solar, nuclear. And let's face it, guys, nuclear at scale is the only way to get this done. But no one talks about water, which is not, there's no substitute for water, right? We're recycling the same water the dinosaurs used and we're poisoning various rivers and lakes and seas. So this is a water intensive business, right? Do you have to become a water expert when you're a vertical farmer? Well, you know, I started in water and, and I think that's part of why I started looking into food. So as I was looking at, for example, Canada, you know, it, as you'll read in my paper, 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And most of Canada's water yeah. is actually flowing away from the population and is in, in areas you can't access. So the cost to access that water, even though Canada is extremely rich in it, is going to be very expensive to get. And sure, it will be justified as scarcity exists. But as scarcity grows in the United States, which it's it, there are, are serious droughts happening, they're going to demand that water from Canada. So there's going to be really interesting political issues. There's also something called virtual water, where you move water across borders in the form of food. So the cattle that's being grown, which is very, very high in its water consumption, it's being shipped over to the United States, you know, that product will have to get more expensive or the externalities around that will have to be increased. So we have a long road to go because the kinds of crops that can be grown in vertical farms you know, they're mostly leafy greens. You know, some vine crops are starting to become viable. Berries will be viable in the future. But we're not growing the crops that necessarily consume the most amount of water. Almonds, avocados, you know, meat, these kinds of things. So, you know, we need to push water efficiency across the board in agriculture. It remains a major, major, I believe, 70% of our fresh water is being used for agriculture. So it's, it's really an extreme you know, source of consumption. So there's so much work to be done on that. Absolutely. I don't think farmers... I mean, traditional farmers should become more water experts. And IoT can play a huge role in that, in helping them understand where leaks are happening, helping them understand what's going on in the soil. And we're starting to see really interesting ag tech in that sector. In indoor farms, yeah, you become a bit of a plumbing expert <laughs> because you have, you have a lot of plumbing and a lot of leaks. Yeah. But, you know, these systems save at least 70% water relative to conventional farming, sometimes upwards of 90%. I've been to farms in the Middle East where because of the amount of humidity around the structure and the dehumidification they're doing, they sometimes even produce a little more water than they consume. And so it, they're really interesting systems, but they're already kind of baseline. Any hydroponic system is quite advanced and it's water saving. But anyway, water is a big part of these indoor systems either way. Actually, just for the, our Canadian listeners, so when I emigrated to Canada, I'm a Canadian, but this accent is from London, and I took it upon myself to look at the NAFTA agreement. So under NAFTA, water is declared a continental resource. It's not Canadian. And the Americans have full drawing rights on it. So enjoy that when that comes to fruition. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 it's really scary. It's yeah. really scary. And, you know, because of the um, the system of the, the federal system in, in Canada, yeah. actually provinces have their own control over water. And there's actually no federal control over water in Canada. There's no structure for that. No. So British Columbia can make deals with whatever number of U.S. states it wants to export its water without consulting any federal government. And so I think there's also going to be a lot of, there already are, but there's yeah. going to be a lot of deals around that that relate to agriculture and water. Yeah, agreed. So again, water, man, there's just such an opportunity here, just from a career perspective. If you're early in your career, you could choose to become a data specialist, an IoT specialist, and a water management specialist, you, you're going to make money, right? You're going to have a great career and you're going to be in demand. And you'll make a difference. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you got the net benefit of actually helping people, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I think that's, you know, what I like to say when we're talking about social entrepreneurship and when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, you, you can start any business. You can create yeah. a better watch. You can create a better app. You can create a better wheel, whatever you want to do. Business is just about finding a gap and solving that problem. But there's so many social and environmental problems. Why wouldn't you target one of those? Because the future is only going to have more of those problems and they're only going to get worse, at least if you choose the right ones. So the potential growth for you, for your bottom line, for your career is high, plus the feel-good aspect of making a difference is high. Absolutely. You know, Adam, I get, I mean, I'm inspired by the dialogue we're having here. Uh, a couple of years ago, I gave a lecture on Exergy, and I don't know if you're familiar with what that's all about. It doesn't really matter. And I remember talking, getting up on stage and talking about you know the problems that we're going to have with society. And I went on and on about these energy issues. And at the end of the lecture, this old guy came up to me, and he must have been probably 85 years old, very wise looking man. And he said, you know what, Robert, I really liked all the stuff that you're going to talk about, but all the problems that you've just identified, don't worry about it. There'll be young guys like Henry Gordon here. Right, yes. that are going to come up with the solutions. We got to put faith in the next generation of brilliant people, you know. And Henry, we've and I'm, I know you're blushing right now, but but the reality is, I got blushing. This was a face. This was a face palm. <laughs> that is that is the wrong thing to say. Get off, get off, butts, baby boomers. Right? You know, my, you know, my dad is a civil engineer. He's got 30 years of experience building projects. You know the yeah. value of that towards this work, and he's applying it. You know, he started yeah. teaching sustainable project management. How do you run a project that's focused on sustainability? And I admire that and that's inspired me. I think I've also inspired him. But you're never too old to change the world. You're never too old to take the lessons you've learned and apply them to fixing a problem. So so that was a face palm, not a... (laughs) I think it's it's important (laughs) that our generation, like Adam and I, we're, we're retired age and Sometimes we look about what we left behind and we, we kind of worry for the next generation. But the reality is, is that there is great minds out there that are taking these problems on and solving them. And we've had a lot of guests on the gentleman who's the, with the uh, World Green Building Council, Adam. Saeed uh, Alaba. Yeah, yeah, another young guy who's just passionate and full of great ideas and solving the problems that we created. You know, fixing You're them welcome. for tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we were sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, Boomer. So, seriously. <laughs> so, Henry, no pressure, but it's on you to solve these problems and your generation. But the other input Oof. I want to talk about quickly is <laughs> chemicals and soil, right? So, chemi- the nitrates in soils, for example, poisoning water tables. You know, this helps with that, right? This is another way of shortcutting that whole pollution cycle. Yeah, look, when we use pesticides... We spray them onto fields, and then basically the runoff from that goes into our water streams. It creates acidification of our oceans, and especially the ends of those streams, the access our oceans, which destroys a lot of estuaries and is really a huge, huge issue. So that is another thing that's prevented. You know, our clients don't use pesticides. I actually have never been to an indoor farm in an urban area that uses pesticides. So we try to avoid that entirely, and that's what consumers want. Consumers don't want uh, chemical pesticides sprayed onto their product. And actually, you know, even more consumers are moving away from organic because it uses organic pesticides, which is not as bad for the water stream, certainly, or, or not really severely negative, but also as a perception of an unnecessary management technique for some of these simpler crops like leafy greens or vegetables or some types of fruits. We need to save those extreme responses for the most extreme uses. That's the bottom line. 
it's funny that going back to Adam and your comment and Henry, yours, when we were writing the indoor air quality course for the Heat and Refrigeration Air Conditioning Institute of Canada, we talked about herbicides, pesticides, algicides. The word side means to kill. <laughs> yes. We're, so we're putting death into the aquifer. It shouldn't be, this should not be a, you know, a, 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 a horrific moment. Like this is, the word itself is about death, you know? Yeah. If we're going to do this stuff, we're, we're killing whatever it's going into. So it's not a shock, right? The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. I'm conscious of your time, Henriette. I know you're on a deadline. I just want to talk about one more thing. Sure. We interviewed a guy called Stephen Falks from the UK who was an energy efficiency expert, and his big point was there is a pile of money looking for investment themes, but you know, energy efficiency, no one wakes up and says, I want to buy energy efficiency. So is there a pile of money looking, or do you see a pile of money coming towards this as a theme? Look, I've been blogging about urban agriculture since 2011. I started getting interested in the topic in 2010. At the beginning, there were no commercial vertical farms. Now in my recent assessment global, I mean, no commercial ones in North America, there were some in Asia, but in my recent assessment globally, I identified 350 vertical farming companies that were very active. We've seen in the past year an increase. If you look at AgFunder, they have really great reports on the increase of investment into this area, but we're seeing the growth of this area increase very significantly. And in ag tech overall, we're seeing a lot of growth. So that gives me a lot of optimism, a lot of positive feelings about it. I'm happy that the startups I work with can raise money. I'm happy that other startups that are making a difference in ag tech can raise money. So we are starting to see investment move towards impact, towards sustainability and agriculture being seen as one of those major ones. There's still a long way to go. A lot of these startups don't think about the farmer properly if they're servicing them, meaning giving them IoT or sensors. Farmers still have a lot of adoption difficulties. So a lot of those companies will struggle to succeed. In the vertical farming space, there are a number of companies that are getting this money because of the Silicon Valley attitude, right? We're betting on your automation tech and your data. And the fact is when you're building these huge, huge systems and they fail, it's a lot of waste. There have been big failures of vertical farms, including the largest one, which was 60,000 square feet. It was the largest one for several years in Chicago, failed. All that equipment was sold in an auction. And that's, you're talking about lights, you're talking about systems, you're talking about, and that's, you know, that is embodied energy that is also bad for the environment. So that's not really great. So what I'd like to see is smarter investors. I mean, I am so surprised by some of the investment choices that are being made in this space. And I think the Silicon Valley attitude applied to ag tech doesn't work. It just, it simply doesn't work. We talked about those biological systems and the complexity in engineering. The same thing applies to capital. It needs to be long-term capital. It needs to be the kind of capital that understands 
what the methods and what's going to work. It needs to be capital that can contribute to these businesses, give them really good marketing value beyond Wired Magazine. But I mean, marketing to the consumers, not to more investors, right? Or advising on the engineering, right? So I'd like to see big engineering companies investing into vertical farms. I'd like to see cities, you know, finding ways to create their own funds to support this as a resiliency strategy. I'd like to see more family foundations looking at this as part of their mission and their impact. And so we're seeing some of that, but I'd like to see more of that because unfortunately, over the next few years, we're going to see more vertical farms fail before we start to get to the successful model of the future. And that's difficult. That's difficult for new entries. It's going to affect the investment, maybe in the short term, it may slow it down. So there's a lot of consequences to that, both sustainability-wise and otherwise. What I want to say, if I can plug something, can I plug something? Sure, please do. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, talking about real estate, talking about all these issues, one of the biggest things, you're talking about impact. You know, I appreciate the kind words you said. I'm proud of our team and what we've done with 110 consultations. But I want to help thousands globally understand the methods to grow food in the city and get their ideas onto paper, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're investors, et cetera. So what we've done is we've built an online planning software. We are launching in beta next month, December 4th, and you can learn about it and sign up for the beta release, or at least be one of the first people to hear about the public release early next year at agritecture.com slash designer. What it is, is it's a free concept tool where you can enter some information of where you're located, what type of farm you think you want to build, what kind of crop you think you want to grow, and you'll get a free recommendation of relevant farms to your idea. Real farms that exist that are similar to your idea. You'll get a sample project plan on what it typically takes to build that. As a paid service, you can actually build a 10-year projection of that farm. And you can build an unlimited number of projects within our subscription. So this is, again, I'm only saying this because it really relates to our topic. Real estate developers can use this to say, what's the value of my retail space? How much could I potentially rent this out for knowing what the farmer could make? And what, wow, it's going to cost that much to build it. Maybe I should look at a different space. Entrepreneurs can use this, as I mentioned, and architects can use this as well. And I think cities will also be able to use this product. So this is how we're going to take our knowledge over the past five years of consulting, my knowledge in the past 10 years, my team's knowledge from actually operating farms and building them and take it global and make it accessible and affordable for everyone anywhere to take their idea for urban farming and put it onto paper. That sounds awesome. And we'll, I'll definitely yeah. put that in the show notes and do a shout out about that. So that's interesting. I mean, for developers, they're going to be interested in running yield and net present value. If that yeah. can pop that out for them, you're halfway there. Yeah, you're going to get payback. You're going to get capital yeah. cost estimate. You're going to get the percentage of capital that goes towards lighting, yeah. plumbing, et cetera. So I'm really excited to showcase that you'll start to see more announcements on our social media over the next few months. That is awesome. Okay, I will highlight all that. So I know you've got to go. We're just going to wrap up with a couple of quick fire questions. So first question is then, what advice would you give to a young mechanical electrical engineer graduating now who might want to go into this space? Where should they look? Yeah, I think the first thing is, you know, try to visit a farm and get a good tour of it or try to get some kind of internship with a farm. What you're going to do is with your knowledge, you'll be able to contribute some solutions to even some small problems that indoor farms, specifically indoor farms have. And that's going to give you a lot of experience that's going to make you very competitive on the job market to enter this space. In addition to that, I always encourage people to build an archive of data. So what farms are growing what, you know, what was their scale, what was their issues, if they failed, how did that happen? You can find a lot of that information on our blog or going to events, but anything you research you should really store it in a consistent place. Okay. So Henry, my question on this is that you've obviously enjoyed the benefits of academia, three different universities. You've pulled out of that. You've started to create a career for yourself. 
how about feeding back into academia? So if I'm someone, look, a dean of some agricultural college or an engineering college, what kind of words would you have for us? Like, what should we look at for future educational programs? Yeah, that's a great question. I was at the University of Guelph recently. I was uh, had the honor of being accepted to the Food Policy Fellowship, and we were looking at new models for education as part of that. And I think it's really about hands-on work. Look, I think it's important to do some research papers. I think it's important to do a lot of homework assignments. But the best work I did at Columbia or UBC or Ryerson was applied learning. So when I had to design a city block that fed itself, when I had to do an energy efficiency calculation for a real building in New York, when I had to design a lead platinum structure, these were the things that really made the foundation of where I am today. And so I think that a lot more universities could focus on that. I think the exchange programs, you know, practical internships were also very useful for me to know what direction I wanted to go. I first wanted to be a diplomat. Uh, that was where I, where I was where I was leading, and then my internships led me in a very different direction. Just a tad, um, yeah. <laughs> so, well, in many ways, you are a diplomat. It's just for a different yeah, part of the absolutely. world. Absolutely, yeah. You're an advocate, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm definitely an advocate. And and I was um the I did an internship with the International Organization for Migration, and we were looking at climate induced migration, and that really led me to understand the scale of the problem, and it had me move towards business as a solution. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, look, thank you. Oh, we're wrapped up now. So I know you've got to go. Thank you very much for coming on. You have not disappointed me. I've, as I said, I've been watching you from afar and been very impressed with what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing, man. This is the world needs this stuff. It really does. So, <laughs> thanks you so much. It's really fun. Really enjoy it. And great name of a podcast. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. You get the joke, awesome. right? <laughs> I got it. I got it. Take care. Okay. Right. Take care. Thanks very thanks, much. Henry. Take care, man. Bye. Well, I gotta say, I am fired up. I was so inspired by that guy. <laughs> he was excellent. Uh, yeah, it's great to see minds like that out there. I mean, let's while well, we both search for these unique individuals yeah. to try to bring them in on the show, right? And that, that of course that's our ethos, really, right? Yeah. And we never get disappointed by the minds that are on the outside the peripheral, playing outside, you know, mainstream. And that individual, Henry Gordon, he's doing it. You know, he's he's got a lot going on there, right? Because he's playing to my one of my favorite themes, which is like the, the talent stack. Having one thing is just not enough anymore, right? He's got yeah. this skill, he's got that skill, and he's putting on top of another skill with another experience, and you're bringing that all together and applying it to this whole emerging field, which has a net benefit to just about everyone who gets involved in it or interacts with it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Shortening supply chains, reuse, adaptive reuse of buildings, cleaner, less polluted food, less externalities from the food chain. There's no downside to this, right? The only downside at the moment is cost and a scarcity arises that will be fixed, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, the whole, I mean, I love talking to these individuals. We had, to, we've talked on the show several times about, you know, the benefits of being within the engineering world and what it's brought to both our careers, you know, yeah. the ability to travel, to, be faced with intellectual challenges, using science as solutions, understanding management of projects, all of these kinds of things. So there's a young individual, Henry, you know, whose father was an engineer, got him to travel around the world, growing up through his eyes, living in Moscow, living in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Canada. You know, he got to see the world at a young age, a world that most people never, ever get to see. Mm. Again, benefiting from the world of science. And he's taken that and look at what he's doing with it. I think there was some, he made another comment that I really struck me that I never really considered before. And that had to do with traditional Northern culture 
being self-sufficient, which they were before the white man showed up and wrecked their communities, (laughs) right? There's nothing we can be proud of our heritage as far as that goes. And we get them off of their ability to sustain themselves and we make them addicted to, you know, our cultural offerings, like he was saying, prepackaged food, for example, you know, and as a result of their changes in their diet, that there's health issues that have resulted. Letting them go back to their traditional ways, providing them the technology, but being able to do it inside, allowing them to grow fresh food on their own terms. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, maybe in the future, like two or three generations down the way, northern communities become exporters of food, right? Yeah, And that becomes a thriving economy. Yeah, when you look at Canada, I mean, for, for those that have never done this, you should actually do this, is get look at a uh, population map of Canada. Yeah. And like you said, like 90% of the population live within 100 miles or 100 kilometers of the U.S. border. I don't know what are those miles or kilometers, yeah. but the reality is, is that northern Canada is vacant. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> vacant. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so there's low costs for land. I mean, the problem is getting power and water not necessarily water because there's lots of water up there, but power is, would be a challenge. But that's a good point. There's no reason why northern communities can't become exporters of food if it's grown indoors. Yeah, I mean, food, in our lifetime, we've seen the real price of food drop exponentially, right? So when when I was growing up, like having meat twice a week was a real treat. And a large portion of my mum's household budget went to food. Now, that portion of the household budget actually has gone down. I believe, like today, mass production, far industrial farming of food and meat has brought the cost of food down a lot, maybe half of what it was 20 years ago, 30 years yeah. ago. And I think that trend is turning around. I think the cost of food has to go up because of the externalities that we spoke about, of the pollution of the food, the health scares. You know, industrial farming is probably at the limit of what it can do now, and it's possibly going to turn back the other way, which will be a benefit yeah. to vertical farming and agritech. Yeah. You know, these people that we have on, in particular, Henry, the questions that we develop after the show, after the recording, you know, yeah. the interview, are reasons why we need to get them back on, because I'm automatically I'm starting to think of stuff I wish I had asked them. One of them had to do with the amount of wastage of food. Yes. You know, and is there a benefit to these vertical farming systems in terms of reducing food wastes? And my understanding is, is that we actually overproduce food for the world's population. The reason why people are starving in parts of the world is we can't get the food to them. Yep. And it gets wasted in the process. How does his solution fit into that picture? You know, that's interesting. I mean, my take on that is wastage of food in the Western world is permissible because it's so cheap. So when that food has a much higher value, there'll be a lot less wastage. There's probably a nice sort of graph there, sort of inverse. Yeah. You know, cost goes up, waste goes down. I'm sure that has got to be the relationship. Right. And somewhere I read that one of the Nordic countries legislated that food shall not be, you know, food of edible quality shall not be thrown out from grocery stores, yep. restaurants, these types of places, because they have a society that is in need. They have a source of it. Of course, they would throw it away because of concerns, right, of not yeah. being edible. But the reality is most of the product that comes out of restaurants at night because it hasn't been used or out of grocery stores is all still good to eat. Yeah. I think and, big, big data will be a part of this solution as well, right? As everything gets analyzed to death, there will be a lot less wastage just from the fact of data telling data analysis, telling mm-hmm. you where the food needs to be when. 
And at what likely probability is it you're going to sell the amount you bring, right? There's a whole industry sort of blooming at the moment on data analysis around that. Yeah, because if you could track the transportation and the light, the shelf life of food anywhere in the world, mm. with some reasonable accuracy, you can predict it's, it's actually, when is it time to actually destroy the product? I think you're onto something there that the data can tell us that. And restaurants should be able to have that data, right? You know, be able to track, okay, well, here's where it came from. Here's how long it took to get here. Here's how long it sat in our restaurant. And, you know, there's still three days of life left in this product. Let's get it out to the food banks. Let's get it out to the homeless people. Let's get it out to wherever it's needed. I was interested. Yeah, I'm going to read his paper, Canadian Water Myths, because when I knew we were emigrating to Canada, I started looking into NAFTA and things. And when you read what's going on in that thing, it's freaking scary. Water is a continental resource. That water is not Canadian. It is deemed continental, which means it's equal access as a human right for anyone in America or Canada. That's interesting. Yeah, and no one knows that, right? Because times are good and no one gives a flying hoot till it's a problem, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Like like fresh air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, NAFTA. NAFTA is a lot like the uh, tax code. It's a gazillion pages long and no one really understands it until there's a problem and someone has to understand a part of it, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. It's hard to all, be optimistic all, sometimes. <laughs> all of a sudden, I got a, an image of a few lawyers making some big money off of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, hopefully, Canada and America will never be in this situation. But, you know, we're so blessed in North America with the abundance of natural resources. And you, when I travel to the Middle East, you really understand how lucky we are in North America. It is just obscene how much we have, really. And yeah. it's really not appreciated, I don't think. Yeah, well, we've talked about this before. Is that, mm. you know, until you get out and see the rest of the world as you and I have, mm. A, you, well, when you do that, you definitely come back to your homeland and you just go, wow, we are so lucky, so blessed to be living here. And then when you're over in the other parts of the world, you're looking at you know, everything around you from mm. how people live, how people move around, their day-to-day lives. Just, uh, I mean, we were in Italy and we were walking down to one of the docks. And the only, place, the only way to get to that with food, for example, would be by boat. Yeah. But in between the parking lot and the dock, you know, it was like a three-hour hike down the hill. And three hours down the hill, there was housing all the way down. No roads, right? How those people got their food was they had to walk it into their houses, and then what do they do with the waste? The same thing. They have to take it down to the dock, right? So, you know, we get in our cars. We drive to the shopping center. We're in and out in a half an hour. There's no effort relative to the effort other societies have to put in to live. Yeah, and then when I'm done with my waste, I put it outside, and like a miracle, it just disappears. The local municipality come and take it away, and I don't have to think about it. Yeah. We are so lucky. Whenever I come back from a... An assignment in the Middle East, I look out, I'm flying over Canada and I look out and I see the green, the lakes, and I know I am a lucky mofo. I really am. Yeah. 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 Well, all you got to do is you think about times like Vancouver when they had a uh, sanitation strike. Yeah. It doesn't take very long. And New York has happened. It's happened Mm. in Toronto, you know, where these essential services, when they go on strike, how quickly the hygiene of a city fails. Oh, yeah. The veneer of, of civilization is paper thin. Ah. It really is. <laughs> I love that. That's a great term, the veneer of civilization. And you're right. 
Yeah. It is very, it is paper thin. Yeah. And all you got to do is have service providers stop working and you quickly see that happen. The odors and yeah. the viruses and the bacteria and the sicknesses and just, oh, the filth, you know? But to wrap up on an optimistic theme, I was talking about yeah. my wife about this the other day. I am still really, really super optimistic about the future for two reasons, mostly. I think technology is really going to come into play and help mm-hmm. solve a lot of problems. And the fact that people of Henry's generation, my children's and your children's generation, are just so sick of the bullshit that you and I and my generation put up with. You're seeing this in politics right now. The ability for people, people understand the shenanigans that are going on so much better now because of the access to information and the fact that two or three news channels don't control everything. And Henry and his generation are just not going to put up with this crap. They're going to do something. And that makes me happy and that makes me really, really optimistic. Yeah. 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 So my, you know, my dad's a full-blown capitalist as we yeah. are, yeah, you and I are, and have been, you know, the recipients of some really, well, I mean, we've been lucky. There's no doubt about it. Oh yeah. But, you know, I remember talking to him and, and talking about the separation between the, the upper class and the lower class and the disappearance of the middle class Yeah. and how at some point something has to give that society will no longer and can't tolerate the crap that's going on. We may see that in our lifetime. Maybe. I think know? we're seeing the start of it already. It's how long it's going to play out, I think, is going to be the question. Yeah, I mean, we have, we're, you have to be naive if you don't think that there's something going to happen. Every developed society in the past has collapsed because of the crap that went on. You can't hide from it. And so we'll see something. I don't know when, maybe. And like I think you're saying, we're starting to see it now. Absolutely. But I am optimistic. I mean, I think everyone yeah. should be optimistic because we have more tools at our disposal now than ever before True. to fix True. anything. So, you know, be optimistic is my message because things are possible. It's just doing it, right? It's the doing it with purpose and having the willpower to do it. And I think that will sort itself out in the end. I agree. Okay, man. So that was awesome. I am very fired up on that. I'm going to go online now and look for investment opportunities in vertical farms. Now I know there's 350 globally. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Take care. I'll see you on the next one. Adam, always a pleasure, man. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters.
Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.